I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. Jurgen Klopp was paraphrasing Arrigo Sacchi when he called football the most important of the least important things in life. There's a lot to be said for that point of view, but is that enough in the current crisis? We're diving straight back into the Premier League in midweek. Steve Bruce triggered an overdue debate when he said that continuing the football season in current circumstances is morally questionable. Do you agree with him, Miguel? I don't, I have to say. It would be morally questionable if there was scientific evidence that the playing and staging of football contributed to the worsening numbers or that's where or players were in some way putting, putting themselves in danger by playing, training or travelling. But all the scientific evidence indicates that's not the case. I ha- I have to say to, to give to give Bruce his due because I think I, I think you're absolutely right. It's a fair debate to start, but I I also think it's and we've heard this a little bit from people around the game. You know, there's been increasing newspaper columns about it, about it, but I think it's an understandable emotional reaction to the situation around us, and almost a feeling that oh something has to be done. There's almost that there's that kind of strange incongruence of on one hand we have these awful numbers of positive cases and deaths per day, and on the other hand the kind of you know quote unquote normality of football taking place. But it, it, this should be a case for rational reasons, not emotional reasons. And I, and I mean, and I suppose to reassert the primary point, if football is not contributing to this crisis, and if it's safe to stage then I don't see any moral issue there and I do think it should continue. And then, of course, there are, there, are, there are wider tangents connected to that. Like, especially if, say, lockdown is enforced to an even stronger degree, the necessity of something like football as entertainment, which was which was a debate that came up in the summer and ended up actually being kind of a bit more moot because restrictions in general less in the summer. Well, it might be, it might be even more essential now. But for me, the bottom line that really comes down here is that it, it's it's about the science. If, if football was contributing to these numbers or a, a danger in itself, I think the argument would be fair. But because it isn't, I don't see the reason to stop it. 
Yeah, the scenes outside the marine ground yesterday didn't really inspire confidence, but, you know, that was a policing issue, wasn't it? Glenn, if you look at the criteria for continuing, and I'm, you know, I'm asking you also whether you agree with Miguel here, but if you do, what are the criteria that we should be using? I, I do agree with Miguel, and for similar sort of reasons, but with one or two caveats. I mean, I think it is a situation that needs to be kept under review as things proceed, and particularly if there's more measures and lockdowns. I mean, obviously, lower down the league, they've had to stop anyway because they're not allowed to travel. I mean, um, Marine can't play league games, for example, even though they can play in the FA Cup. And in the women's game, there's very few teams that are still able to play. The In terms of the caveats, I mean, one is the, the science. I mean, although, obviously, players tend to be younger and fitter, there have been some players that took Newcastle, yeah, one or two others who have suffered quite badly from the effects of catching COVID. I mean, they've not been hospitalised in fact, as far as I'm aware, but yeah, there is an impact there. And obviously we don't quite know what the situation is in terms of even if you've been tested regularly and even if you had it, whether you can uh, still pass it on. So I would say it, one provider should be, I mean, players don't want to play, are unhappy about it. They should be allowed to opt out. I mean, like in various industries, people have been allowed not, you know, not to go into the office as it were. They should be allowed to opt out without any penalty. I know that football's not that sort of industry, really, but it certainly should be one taken into account. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree with the idea of vaccinating players because that's taking away resources. But um, yeah, I don't see a problem at the moment. They're not taking away resources. They're managing their own testing. There's plenty of capacity for testing. They're managing their own, you know, sort of medical, internal medical health care as a general rule. So there's talk about maybe, you know, banning goal celebration, stuff like that. To be honest, I think if players are grappling each other at corners in close contact and travelling together the games and things, I don't really think that shaking hands at the end of a game or those sort of things are going to make an awful lot of difference. Uh, what I would think should be cracked down, and maybe it is time with it for the FA to really put, put their market and the Premier League in conjunction, is the breaches that begin to crop up. Yeah, players doing stuff and being daft enough to post on social media. This is basically the men's and the women's game. I mean, the Rugby Football Union have said they're looking at, they basically warned their clubs that they are prepared to crack down, uh, potentially eight-match ban for players, 10 points for the clubs. I mean, those are the sort of punishments that would really make an impact. I mean, um, fining players doesn't make any difference. I mean, there weren't enough money that fines inco- inconsequential. Missing matches makes a big impact both for the club and the player. And we're starting to see a certain amount of complacency, a certain amount of bubble behaviour creeping in, you know, untouchability in one or two one or two areas. I mean, we're talking a very small minority and most players have been absolutely very good in men's and women's games. But a small minority, of course, that creates a lot of power publicity and obviously increases the risk of infection. Yeah, I, you know, let's look at the, the duty of care issue, if we could, please, Migs. You know, Steve Bruce makes the point that some of his players are still suffering after contracting the virus in November. Jurgen Klopp believes that Trent Alexander-Arnold has been suffering from the long-term effects of the, of the disease. There are these warning signals still cropping up, aren't there? I, I guess, I mean, I don't want to sound brutal here or callous but I don't quite see how that's football how that fo- that is football's issue if they haven't contracted it from playing football there, there is a more difficult question there I mean does society shut down while this is still a risk and do, do all sectors of them because this is the risk everyone faces and it ultimately becomes it becomes about a threshold of whether we want to continue and I think Glenn's raised a very good point there about the, the opt-out I, I think that's a more nuanced and manageable option for situations like those that that Klopp and Bruce raise. 
If I might come in, one from a particularly football point of view, I think there is an argument maybe for pausing League One, League Two. The players aren't tested as regularly. There's probably high levels of infection. And to be honest, there's, there is there is flex in the calendar for League One, League Two to take a break. They haven't got the impending wall of the Euros turning up. Very few players at League One, League Two are involved in the Euros. In fact, pushing it back a bit might even help them financially because I, mean, I know they have to keep playing players. But it might be that some fans will be allowed in by the time they can later in the later in the year. It might well be that they get more more coverage as well with the Premier League it finishes and then you've got say a month late May early June when you've only got League 1 and League 2 playing that might actually help them so there may be an argument at that level particularly because there's not so much testing going on there but isn't isn't we got the, we're confronted by the age old problem here aren't we of of institutionalized self interest it's 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 absurd that in terms of the practical issues of scheduling you know Jose Mourinho and Tottenham don't really know who if anyone, they're going to be playing on Wednesday night and we're now on Monday morning. That's madness. Do you think that whole problem, central problem, Migs, of essentially no one wants to give way in, in this? There's, there's no room, apparently, for compromise in this whole structure of, of professional football. Isn't that the issue? Oh, yeah, completely. And, in fact, it's really it's an evolution of an issue that the whole project big picture debate brought up which is the lack of in English football in particular the lack of any sort of central authority or main gatekeeper that there's too many disparate interests with the Premier League obviously being the most influential and it means when it comes to discussions like the calendar and now to be fair this isn't just English football's problem this is one that was spread around Europe which is why we're in, we're in the situation we're in when it, when it comes to trying to create a calendar and what should be an adjusted calendar for an adjusted time. Everyone has their argument about why they shouldn't see their piece of the pie. Uh, and uh, relevant to those arguments as well is the fact that no one wants to seed ground now because it means potentially seeding ground in normal time or creating some sort of precedent. And even if you, so if you say, I mean, let's be fair, I know we, we might come on to this a little bit, but like the FA Cup at the weekend, situations like I I know the Chorley story was romantic for the supporters and great and all the rest of it. But ultimately, at a time of a pandemic, when the football calendar is under huge stress, we had a non-league team playing a bunch of kids in front of nobody just to fulfil fixtures. And the argument there, of course, is the FA Cup is so central to the FA's finances and the general running of the game, it has to be played. And obviously, of course, there's broadcasting contracts related to that. But that's a situation where every single competition we get to, everyone has that same argument. And there, there's no compromise around it because I suppose ultimately of... And I, I think Klopp was correct in this because of inflexible contracts that were related to a pre-COVID time. Yeah, I think, I think, I think the FA Cup... It's fine. I mean, the FA Cup have given a bit. The League Cup's given a little bit. The Premier League hasn't moved at all. I find it extraordinary that, as far as I'm aware, there was no planning done before the season started. What happens if we can't complete the programme? Or what might we do if it starts to look a bit dodgy? I mean, we've just come out to the halfway point, 19 games each. Everyone played each other once. You could have had a situation where, if it was looking a bit bad, there was a contingency that you split the league top 10, bottom 10, and then you, you just play each other in that top 10, bottom 10, the reverse fixtures for the rest of the season. You shave about eight matches off the season, then they do it in other countries. They do it in Scotland. We'll have they do it in South America. It's not a completely rogue idea. And I mean, the comp, you know, these couple of weeks will be really exciting. You know, will Arsenal get in the top 10, for example? So that could have been a contingency plan. Also, 
you know, the self-interest mean if we get to a situation where they're struggling to complete the fixtures, it's going to be exactly like last year. All the teams that are going to get relegated will be saying we want to carry on. All the teams that are almost going to get relegated are saying let's stop because self-interest takes over. Yeah, as I said earlier on, it's an age-old problem that. You know, I, I want to speak up for the FA Cup, to be honest, because, you know, you talked to Migs about football being a distraction in pretty grim times. I thought there was something uplifting about the weekend. Okay, you know, I take all the, you know, the parameters of the problem. You've got, you know, the Villa kids on, on Friday night. But out of that, you've got Louis Barry, his goal, that interview. You've got... Spurs, Alfie Devine, you know, Jack Pickbrook came up with the line of the weekend for me that Devine was born two months after the special one press conference by Mourinho, which blew my head off. I couldn't believe that. And you've got Crawley, Nick Cerulla, released by Spurs at 18 when he was involved in a car crash, trying to get his game back for a year. He scores in that game against Leeds, who, by the way, aren't everyone's second team, are they? You know, you've got a whole load of storylines there, which actually really gripped me. I'd agree. I I, I, actually, I started the uh, the weekend thinking, um, I'm, I think the FA Cup really needs fans more than any. By the end of the weekend, I was watching every game that was on. I, I think the individual stories are definitely gripping, but I, I would point out they're individual stories, nice individual stories, and because there's still a structural issue here, which hasn't gone away, and and even and even those kind of individual stories really do still kind of pale against, which is, I mean, and don't get me wrong, the romantic ideal of the FA Cup is is brilliant. It's, it's still one of the great things in football. The reality, however, it still runs up a contrast. And the reality right now is that for because of what it's become and because the big stick, the big stick still almost win it, almost by default, just through sheer force of numbers, it's basically, and this is especially true for most of the Premier League, most of the Championship, and even some of League One. And that is a lot of clubs. And again, I should stress, a lot of clubs at a difficult time for the calendar where it's basically a nuisance. Look at QPR against Fulham at the weekend. On the other side of the uh, of the stories, these are clubs that basically know they're not going to win it. It's, so, so they end up just putting in, you know, almost second teams or it becomes almost kind of a almost a semi-competitive game in the middle of, of, of a season like this. And if you go, and you basically have to go right down to the bottom of League One or even League Two where the draw actually matters. And for a handful of clubs that may be in a Crawley situation or maybe in a, or in a Marine situation. But these are, you know, inc- increasingly kind of isolated. And, it, and it's still true of the third round. But the fourth round, that kind of novelty has got off to, to a certain degree. So this, for, for, so for a huge tranche of clubs... Yeah, yeah, the weekend's games were a nuisance, and we we can't get away from that reality either. And that 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 that's still a lot of evidence, and we still have situations like okay, not this season because of obvious circumstances, where you know there's so many stories of previous managers not being too bothered about getting knocked out of the FA Cup because there's a chance to bring the players to Dubai or whatever for a training camp, so they're better set for the Premier League. Yeah, but you could argue. I mean, I'd say look at the players who played at the weekend. I mean, Salah played, De Bruyne played. Chelsea played a strong side. All three teams in games that you'd expect them to win are going to easier field weakened sides. And the FA Cup is six matches. It's not the FA Cup is not the cause of the fixture problem. It's six matches maximum for anybody. The problem is the size of the Premier League, which should have been cut like it originally agreed it would do when it was first founded back in 1992-93. Well, I don't disagree with that, but I also think 
though the, the strength of the teams that both Liverpool and Chelsea played were not about the FA Cup it was about their struggles in the Premier League so once again it's the, the pervasive influence of the Premier League even there both teams needed wins to get back on track but isn't that the point of the whole exercise you know managers some managers will narrow their priorities out of circumstance others will say well let's have a go at the cup because they see the broader element especially outside you know what we still probably outdatedly refer to as the top 4 so I think the cup has a place in the calendar and I really would take Glenn's point there about, you know, there are relatively few matches involved. The broader issue is the issue, the, the relationship between the Premier League and the FA. We're back to the old problem of basically English football has got a completely dysfunctional structure, aren't we? Yeah, completely. And, and again, I said that it's just, this is just re-emphasise an issue that was raised in quite stark terms by Project Big Picture. There, there, there is no... English football has never been in greater need, especially in times of crisis, of some sort of independent, unifying body. And, and this, this is actually... It's an issue that's come up at kind of FIFA level and UEFA level a lot, where you have bodies that are kind of... that are supposed to be... or that are idealistically gatekeepers or safeguards of the game who are also vested interests because they run competitions in the game and those competitions are while they're part of the same ecosystem they almost are in competition themselves so for example the Champions League to a certain degree is in competition with the World Cup because there's a, there's, there's, they're, they're competing for a size of the potential ad market and potential advertisers. I know that said that, uh, that uh, on the surface sounds ludicrous, but it's the truth. And yet, and yet these and both competitions are run by bodies that are supposed. To, uh, this, this is precisely why, up until an entente last year, that and it was an entente that was brought on because of COVID, that FIFA wanted their own Club World Cup. Because it was, it was, they saw how much money the Champions League was making, and we're thinking, oh, we we want a piece of that. Yeah, and well, I suppose European competition is is an intractable problem simply because it is so it's is absolutely cemented into the structure, isn't it? There's no way that anyone will challenge the primacy of those competitions. I think on a, another broader issue, what about international football and this summer's Euros? Well, I mean, we've got a, we've got friendlies now that are suddenly. Okay, they're still a little bit away yet, but they're on the horizon. We've got a round of fixtures in March. Uh, sorry, they're not going to be friendly. To be fair, there's going to be some World Cup qualifiers. And if the attitude from October, November is maintained, they're not going to be moved. And that could be at a point where there is some backlog of fixtures. That's going to create a very interesting debate. Yeah, some of those World Cup qualifiers, I mean, to be honest, look at the situation, they should have sorted that out that out in advance. You could have scrapped the whole March programme. You could have cut the World Cup qualifiers down to 13 groups of four teams, some pre-qualifiers to reduce 55 into 52. There's an argument that Russia shouldn't be there anyway because of the drug drug taking the ban. Um, and then you can take March out and you can start the World Cup qualifiers in September when hopefully things will be much, much improved. I mean, the other, the other big issue with March is not just the fixture issue. It's all those club, all those countries travelling across Europe. I mean, there was a whole rash of um, infections after the last international round. And this is also going to crop up with the European games. I mean, the French are talking about banning clubs coming in. I mean, there's an issue rugby at the moment none of our clubs are playing French teams in this round of the next European competition but inevitably some might later on this whole idea of travelling across Europe is going to get much much more complicated 
But just on that, like, isn't isn't the lack of foresight there again? I, this is something that's come up time and again since last March, basically. Well, more last summer, but just <laughs> it is. It's like we're living in. We've obviously been living with this situation for close to a year now. Government pandemic, and a lot of those organ organizers in the game. It's almost like they're always planning for the best case scenario. Well, Boris rather, keeps telling him it's going to be over in a couple of weeks. <laughs> but yeah, but but, 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 but even <laughs> but. But isn't that isn't that the you know the nature of, of of football administration is to put your fingers in your ear and and sing a happy song and and think everything is going to be okay? Yeah, well, that's certainly been the case. Now, I suppose it doesn't help to be fair that a lot of these decisions have been made at what were relatively. I don't. I I want to carefully choose my language here because obviously the the just the, the wider situation is so grim. But when it what like say say in the summer when numbers weren't quite as high. And were in some cases considerably lower. That's when they made decisions about the calendar and the fixtures and the competitions. But but again, as we as as we just say, there should have been more foresight about that. But you, I suppose, you can't detach yourself from the fact that the situation that the that the fixtures was made in influences the mindset around it. But again, it's why there should be there should have been much more foresight and there should have been much more flexibility to the calendar. And it mm. it, it is remarkable. And, and the thing with that as well is, it means. Even though we hope with the vaccinations and program, and the influence of that, we return to a more normal calendar next season, a more normal situation in life as well. But because this this season has been so intense, it will have a knock on effect physically for some time, especially when next season is going to be already quite disrupted because of the twenty twenty two World Cup on the horizon. Yeah, I suppose. Well, let's look at, at women's football, which is an area of, of specialism for you, Glenn. Yeah, Emma Hayes at Chelsea has talked about a dark week for women's football. I think the honesty of, of Casey Stoney at Manchester United in, in admitting her mistakes was really refreshing. But the overall impression of the women's game at the moment is that it's in chaos. Yeah, it has been a very bad week. I mean, I did a piece for The Eye on Saturday morning and the website put a headline on it about the biggest crisis in the WSL short history. I remember looking at it and thinking, ooh, that's a bit strong. And they're all about it. I think that's probably right. We've had a couple of clubs go bust, but always there's a sense that they were outliers. There's been a situation with restructuring that obviously caused a lot of pain for the clubs that were affected. But again, there was a sense that it sort of just accelerated what would have happened anyway. This is the first time I can recall and, and others that the game's really been at odds within itself to an extent that players against players, coaches against coaches, administrators against teams and fans very, very angry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's, an, there's always been this idea that women's football is this nice community where everyone likes each other and it's all well-behaved and they don't dive and they don't back-check the referees and so on. And it has been like that to an extent. But I've always felt that, you know, once you introduce money and the stakes get higher, there's no obvious reason why women players should be any different to men players in terms of the way they view, they view things, especially the ones who come up through academies and have lived in the sort of the, the bubble environment that the professional sportsmen tend to. I mean, rather than the ones who have had jobs outside the game and have played part-time and have a better appreciation. And now we do have this gap between the um, one or two of the players who are the older players who have done the hard yards in the early years when they were working two jobs and training at week and training in the evenings and stuff like that, who aren't too impressed with the younger ones who are going off to Dubai for alleged business meetings in, in breaks and and some people coming back with infections and causing games to be offered. And there was a real sort of dissension within the game. It's um, You just hope that it will be eased soon, but it's not easy to see how quickly in this circumstance it will be. 
Yeah, is is the women's game mirroring the the ills of the men's game in terms of you know elitism? You know, basically the the WSL can be won by about four or five clubs, can't it? Well, it, it, isn't that I got a case when basically, and this is something that's happened across Europe as well, when the super clubs and if I realize basically the, the the merits in women's football, obviously, but that's always going to be a natural consequence because they're they're just going to ultimately have much more resources. It is, but funny enough, the amount of resources to be successful in women's football aren't that great. I mean, I mean, Leon are massively dominant across Europe in women's football, yet they're by no means the biggest club in in. European football, I mean, compared to you know, the bigger men's club, and yet they've been prepared to put resources in. We've got this interesting development in America where there are one or two independent clubs being formed. I mean, the LA one being the most obvious one, being Natalie Portman and you know, some very high profile backers. I mean, the amount of money required to be successful in women's football, I mean, the clubs are running at a loss of about two to three million pounds. I mean, that's, that's pretty small money in football terms. You could easily, you know, a Moderate Premier League team, if it wanted to, could could dominate the women's game by instead of spending ten million pound on, on a, you know, a reserve midfielder from France, decide oh we're going to spend ten million quid in the women's game. Yeah, that would make sense on a on a, on a whole number of levels. You mentioned you know, the academy bubble almost there, Glenn Miggs. I just want to look at the almost some of the hidden aspects of of the issue around. COVID and disruption of, 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 of football as we know it. There are hundreds of under-16 players out there who were told last month that they wouldn't be getting scholarships at the end of the season. What happens to them? Because their chances of getting another club are, are, are by definition, hugely reduced simply because academy football has been shut down. Well, that's exactly it. And it was something I thought about at the very start of the pandemic, but in kind of, I have to say, in more... In, in wider terms almost that and and especially at the situation where at the very start when it was almost we we're close to complete lockdown and we didn't know how long it was going to it was going to go on for what like and I suppose I was thinking about it in quite basic terms and like how do footballers develop it's basically I had young footballers develop it's basically by touching a ball a lot in competitive situations and playing with other people if that is that is something that has been now denied to so many young players and you don't even have to go to under 16s who are on the verge of professional contracts here you can go right down to kind of the net the like to, to kids who are just being denied this stream of football now obviously they're bigger concerns in life but it's it's an important it's an important social aspect and now that's been cut off for a generation and kind of a lot of kids have had made what a year's football denied to them and as you say you the, the kids at most effects are those who would have been on the brink of contracts who now have nowhere to go. And it is just a game being put on hold. And, and I suppose we could be in a situation where we could be losing. And, and this, this, I appreciate this is a very narrow view to have in the current situations, but it, it's, it's the way some people would be thinking. We're losing potentially some very good footballers because they have no choice but to explore other avenues career-wise because currently football can't offer them what they, their talent probably warrants. But it's difficult to see how you offer a solution to that because it's such a, a unique and unprecedented situation. Yeah, what what about, Glenn, the, 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 your experience of grassroots football, you know, youth football? 
it seems to be a bit of a wasteland at the moment. Well, can, can I just start with, just to, you will know this better than me, Mike, but um, it strikes me actually that the lack of opportunity for 16-year-olds in the scholarships might actually be a blessing in disguise because you know as well as I do that the, the tiny proportion of those players will ever make it as professionals. And mm. the vast majority have their heads filled with dreams of, of stuff that will never happen and are kept on by clubs merely because for the, the one great player in their squad, they need 10 people to fill the rest of the team. And a lot That's of these great. kids, it will probably be a blessing in disguise to release at 16 before they get their careers completely and their heads completely turned. And the really, really good players, the clubs know who they are, they will still f- find a way of keeping those players in the system. So I, I don't think the academy is a, a massive problem in that respect. It might even help some kids. They will actually maybe concentrate on their studies a bit more rather than just spending all the time thinking about a dream that will never happen. In terms of the grassroots, I mean, that's just a horror show. I mean, um, no one can play. You know, you can't play. Kids are just spending all the time online. I mean, maybe afterwards there'll be this pent-up demand to get out there on the parks and to play and stuff like that. But um, at the moment, I mean, yeah, the grass is growing. The um, leagues are being torn up for second season succession. Just, you know, competitions aren't finishing. And no one's playing. It's just an absolute horror show. But it's very hard to see... There's no, you know what I mean, school sport going on. I mean, um, it's, it's very hard to see a solution in the current pandemic, how you can avoid that. But it's a desperate situation at grassroots level. Mm. Do you think this is an existential threat to the game? No, because the, the, the game's huge, massively huge. I think it'd be more of a problem for some minor sports, perhaps, who, where people aren't playing. I mean, for football, may not be being played very much, by, but it's all over the television. It's one of the few sports that is all over the television. So I don't think in that respect. Cricket, to an extent, has got a bit lucky because they, we did get half a season last year, and by May, hopefully, we get a season. But that's been affected at schools level as well and at, at grassroots level. Rugby, of course, that's a winter season. I suspect there's a big problem. Rugby's not really my sport, but I suspect there is a big problem with rugby at grassroots level with players not playing. And bar taking is a huge for a lot of um, rugby clubs in terms of turnover and stuff like that. So there might be more of an issue there. I know you're a five-a-side warrior, Migs. Have you been able to play much? <laughs> I get a getting, I suppose, very uh, personal experience here. Not really. <laughs> and again, this is, I know this is such a hollow frustration in the, in the, whole, in the whole situation, but I think I've got over about... 10 maybe 11 games since last September and it feels like every time you get a bit of a run together then football has stopped again and again I, I'm not I'm not I'm not complaining about that anyway obviously I appreciate it has to happen but I suppose it just reflects the the frustrations of the situation we're in just just, just when you feel like you're getting match fit again because it's, it's amazing like you know even after a month without playing you go back and mentally you always think oh yeah I, I, I can do what I was doing a month ago then you realise, oh, I, I am not fit here. <laughs> and then uh, Del- Delaney and match fitness, I don't really, th- they don't compute, do they? <laughs> After a few games, you know, I, I, I need, I need a regular run of games. One of those players. <laughs> well, we, um, I, I also, I still play five as well, despite my advancing years. We, we play indoors, though. We haven't played since March, and we won't be playing right. probably till next March because indoor halls have been blocked very early on, and we play in the school, and obviously the school closed up quite quickly and don't rent the facilities out for big groups and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's that's going to be at least a year without playing. Imagine how unfit we'll all be. <laughs> right. Not the most, most urgent problem, this one, either. What about the impact of all this on the transfer window, Migs? I think... Certainly this January, it will have the suppression effect that in England, it didn't in the summer. I mean, it's, it's actually incredible now. <laughs> the transfer market in, 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 in the summer was one of the, one of the busiest we've ever seen and in, 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 included huge net spend, which was absolutely remarkable. And you do wonder whether, say we do get to some sort of situation where they have to shut down elite sport again, 
whether clubs will regret that. Uh, as of now, that isn't the case. But I do think there will be, given the situation got worse, given that's on the horizon, and just suppose the general nature of, of January, we will see a situation more like the rest of Europe where club English clubs are a lot more hesitant. And I don't expect that much business at all to be done. I mean, I suppose look at the... the pick out an individual example Spurs who are one of the busiest teams in the summer partly because of that I don't expect them to do any business this January unless they sell which seems unlikely and I think that'll be the case across the board and even clubs that are in need of some some sort of business will be a little bit less or a little bit more hesitant to push the button yeah I suppose well Manchester United have spent I think an initial 37 million pounds on Ahmad Diallo from um uh, Atalanta, only 18. Is that foresight or rashness, Glenn? Could you ask me in five years? We might know by then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, it's, it's extraordinary some money to spend on a player who's played a handful of games. Obviously, yeah, I mean, he's very highly regarded and they've seen a lot of him, but there is so much that can go wrong between the ages of 18 and 21. So many players who were the next big thing who never quite turned out to be the next big thing. I mean, it, it is quite a gamble. It's quite a statement. But it might turn out to be unbelievable. It might be turning around in five years' time saying, cool, that was a bargain. Yeah. I mean, I assume he's not going to be the next Bebe, but we'll see. I mean, it's impossible to tell. United obviously see something and there are other clubs after him, but it is a gamble. But that, that, that point actually raises what has become a really interesting shift in the transfer market. I mean, like for, like for, most of the, of, for most of the history of transfers in football, the biggest fees have usually gone for players. And you, logically enough, you'd think players in their prime are about 27, 28, precisely because they're in their prime and you're buying guaranteed quality. Yet these days, with more, I suppose, with, with some more financial <laughs> intelligence in football and that, Clubs now realise there's not there's not not the same value in buying someone that doesn't have that much of their career ahead of them because they're in their prime, and it's why the biggest transfer fees now usually go on potential in that regard, and it's why in Europe and this has been a reason why the transfer market has been so suppressed as well. In Europe, so many of the biggest clubs have suddenly been left with these, and this is particularly true of Barcelona and Juventus. They've been left with these bloated squads where they have kind of players in their late 20s, early 30s on huge contracts that they can shift because no one wants to just wants to pay the money to get those players in or get those players out. And the players themselves obviously don't want to give up huge contracts. And it's created this kind of strange stasis in the market and is another factor into why increasingly clubs will spend the money on players who are 24 or younger rather than those in their prime. And so it's why I think situations like this they're going to be less seen as gambles and more seen as kind of a logical way to do business. It's it's like buying stocks almost. Yeah, because when you make a mistake, it's pretty visible, pretty obvious and pretty damning usually. West Ham, they managed to jettison Seb Haller to Ajax, a clear case of cutting their losses, Glenn? Yes, I mean, funny enough, I saw one of his first games at Watford and he scored then, I think. He looked like he might be a bit of a player. and I suspect there is a player in there, but... You get these chances where the fit doesn't quite work. The amount of turnover at West Ham obviously hasn't helped. And yeah, it's a good decision. You know, if you can get him off of the books, um, get some money, why not? And then look to bring in a player. I mean, David Moyes has made sufficient impact that he looks like a degree of permanency there, as much as you're ever going to have at West Ham. And therefore, time to start building the team that he wants in his own image rather than trying to fashion what he can out of what he's been left with. Yeah, when you're looking at West Ham bringing people in, uh, Saar at... Um... 
Watford has been mentioned, uh, Migs. When you look at that team, can we just dwell a little bit on David Moyes himself? You know, someone who was pretty much not not quite derided, but certainly was disrespected over the last sort of year or so. He's actually proving himself again, isn't he? Yeah, completely. And I have to say, I, I was one of those who was kind of I, I wrote at the time and think if you're if you're a club with any sort of ambition or upwardly mobile, why? I basically couldn't see why you go for Moyes, who seemed like a manager out of step, whose football would be, I suppose, closer to something from 15 years ago and that kind of Benitez Mourinho era than the than the current trends, but. He's done a very good job and he's left a few of us eating our words. And I, I mean, that's the thing. West Ham haven't just been kind of some functional team with a strong base who are going to go from there. There's been a bit more to them. They've caused big sides, big problems in games. Yeah, and I, I think it's absolutely to Moyes' credit. Did you know Moyes is younger than Mourinho, for example? Is he? Yeah. Well, Only well, about a few months, but he's that. slightly younger than Mourinho. That's what I mean. There's sort of, he's sort of this image that he's been around for years, and he's, but he's, he's actually younger than, than Mourinho. Yeah, well, someone who has been around for years is is Sam Allardyce. Has there ever been a more identical signing than Rob Snodgrass to West Brom? Especially given he's worked with him before, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. I suppose it's. A, I mean, it's both a, it's both a classic Allardyce move and a classic relegation battle move. And come on, we're in trouble. Get, get into someone we know and trust. They'll, they'll, mm. and, and the classic words do a job. Mm. That's not going to work, is it? At right now, it feels like the. The quality of the squad is too low. I think that was all. I mean, to be fair, I think that was always the issue with West Brom getting promoted. And that I don't think anyone predicted to stay up. I think everyone felt the it was basically it, 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 maybe one of those unfortunate situations where the squad was you know top quality championship level, but not quite high enough Premier League level. And you you do wonder then in that situation. And I mean, this almost comes back to the lack of foresight we talk about in the Premier League and to a certain degree the greed and it almost feels like West Ham, West Brom have got into the Premier League now and they've taken the short term decision to try and just stay there when maybe the more prudent decision and better for the long term and maybe for for maybe long term consistency in the Premier League is that they did what Burnley did say in fourteen fifteen, went up got the experience and the revenue from going up but accepted that this this mightn't be, they, they might have to go back down. But then from going back down, use all that, use that experience, use use the, the greater revenue to kind of, kind of consolidate the team in terms of quality and go straight back up again and in a much better position. But it feels I think like maybe a lot of short-termism. Put... Yeah, yeah, a lot of short-termism West Brom. I mean, they should have stuck with Darren Moore. I mean, I've seen Doncaster a few times actually the last couple of years and they're one of the best teams in the lower division in terms of the way they play their football. And, um, yeah, they're competing with teams with much bigger budgets at the top of that division. He wasn't doing a bad job there. Mm. You, you mentioned Mourinho, Glenn. He's clearly made his decision on Delhi. There's a lot of talk about PSG involvement, obviously because of Pochettino. What credence do you give that? Well... I mean, uh, Migs would know better than me whether it's true or not, but it this makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can't see him going to a mid-ranking Premier League side. That wouldn't necessarily work. I mean, he's going to feel he's better than that. There is a relationship with Pochettino. I, I suspect Ali would be attracted by the idea of playing for PSG. I mean, a, a proper big, genuine club. You know, And we know he's a very good player. He's, he's currently having a bad time. I mean, he looked great last night, but it was against, obviously, part-timers. But it showed his attitude was right, which is really you know, important. And you know, I always thought that one of those moves that makes a lot of sense, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I would agree. <laughs> 
I mean, irony, but if he does a Coutinho and ends up scoring against him in the Champions League, of course, they're not, not, <laughs> they're not the same competition, are they? I don't think so. Uh, well, what about, let's look at the sort of the, the Premier League season so far, if we could, Migs, in terms of who's made the biggest strides forward. I'd probably put Southampton in that category. Is that the Hassenhutl effect? Oh, yeah, completely. And I think we're, re- and it's why Chelsea are one of the clubs suddenly looking at if they, have, if they do eventually dispense with Lampard. Aston Hootle would would be on the list, especially because they 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 feel like they might have missed out on Pochettino in that regard, or well, certain people at the club do, but yeah, and I think that that is the benefit. I, I mean, I know I know I basically I went back on writing off Moyes just a few minutes ago, but I'm always going to go back on that. This is the benefit. This is the benefit of really best practice in terms of the coaches you bring in, and Southampton Southampton really got ahead of once again just as they did with Pochettino, Southampton have really got ahead of the game there. And so far, they're one of the few clubs that have actually stayed resistant to what I would call the championification of the Premier League, where in the, this is, it's amazing how often this happened this season, and it's to a greater degree than any time I can remember since the 1990s, where the complexions of the club completely change within, within the spell of just three games. I've, I haven't seen that this millennium in the Premier League, because basically because it's been in such a fixed place due to its finances. It's been kind of much more structurally solid in that regard. Yet this season, because of so many factors from the COVID situation, it's been so wildly unpredictable. But Southampton are one of the teams so far to stay resistant. The one thing I would say about Southampton is that, I mean, I've got someone in my house who's very into these sorts of statistics. I mean, they are, on expected goals, massively overperforming. I think it's partly because Danny Ings has been sensational and Ward-Prowse is banging free kicks like no one. Those things tend to regress to the norm at some point. There's no sign of Sheffield United or Brighton ever scoring the goals from the chances they're creating because they haven't got a striker. But... um, for me, the most improved team is Villa by by mile. I mean, no one's suggesting Dean Smith should be getting one of the top jobs, but I mean, he's a, a sens- and he's very happy at Villa being a born and bred Villa fan. But he's done a sensational job there. Where you think they were, you know, stayed up by the skin of the teeth last year, and a couple of years ago when he first went in there, they were a basket case. Mm. Doesn't look like they're going to play against Spurs, does it? On Wednesday, the the day before on Tuesday, Everton, another club, I think galvanised by coaching, they were they're, they're at Wolves on Tuesday. There are obviously huge vaulting ambitions there, Migs. Are they justified? Not just yet. I think, especially when you look... I mean, did you know the, the average points of Everton over the last decade? Well, since 2013, I, I did a piece on this and I, I, I kind of based it on the time since Ferguson retired because that was such a supposed juncture moment for the league. But in the seven years since Ferguson retired... When there was a bit more of a vacuum, and you, you, you there, there has been a bit more volatility in the league, as indicated by leaving Leicester winning it in twenty sixteen, Everton's average point is is forty eight forty nine, which is remarkable for a club that size, and the only manager so far to really bust that out is Roberto Martinez in one season, so, I think Everton have to prove almost that they're, they're really the next best club outside the big six before they could at the moment it's a sense and I, I suppose this is natural when you have a manager like Ancelotti with his record when you make a signing like James Rodriguez and when you've, when you've had James Calvert or sorry Dominic Calvert-Lewin on such incredible form that there's going to be optimism but I, I think Everton have to prove 
a bit of a greater consistency before they indicate they're one of the clubs that should that were going to be regularly in the top six or competing for the Champions League places. There's it almost feels like a case of kind of running before they can walk in that regard. And like I, I mean, think the la- issue of la- Everton. Sorry, uh, I think the issue of Everton is that they have a very good first eleven, but as soon as they have injuries, and recently they've had Coleman out, Digne yeah. out, Rodriguez out, Richarlison out. As soon as they have injuries, they haven't got the backup strength that say, that other clubs have. Mm. Have they got? An identity, I suppose. That you've, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of something like Burnley, for instance. They're, they're back to back to the Burnley that we know and some of us love. They, they've got Manchester United at, at home on Tuesday. I've got a half a suspicion they might uh, create this week's crisis at United. What do you think? Yeah, and it's it's also a, it's what it's almost a year since they got that win at Old Trafford to create one of the most, one of the biggest crises in the first place, and one of the crises that essentially was a huge influence in the club signing Bruno Fernandes which has been the main shift at Manchester United in the last year but yeah I think they could cause real problems and I suppose there's almost an element of uh, I mean as you kind of alluded to there not everyone will exactly be enamoured by Burnley's style but there is there is something good about the fact they haven't just eventually petered out because I think that was an expectation this season especially after the early results that suddenly they'd hit that sort of Plateau that does happen in the Premier League. I mean, just to throw another stat from a piece I've done, the 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 the, the average lifespan of a club in the Premier League outside those who have never been relegated. So what's that? There's about six, seven clubs, including Everton actually, and also Manchester City since the takeover. And that, but outside of this kind of established Premier League group, you might say. So basically, everyone else, and it, and it ends up amounting to about. 40 clubs right across the four leagues the average lifespan is 3.8 years because basically no matter how well run you are they eventually hit a plateau and, and, and come back down and it looked like Burnley were going to be in that situation as well they'd been well run but they hit a plateau but so far Dyche looks like he's arrested it and now we might have the benefit of kind of a takeover and another change in the club mm. One thing that doesn't change is Manchester City's strength in depth and the intensity of their ambition. They're at home to Brighton on Wednesday in a BT Sport game. Glenn, you watched the Brighton game last night. They struggled manfully to overcome Newport. Against a team that's coming on very strong in the second half of the season, it's going to be pretty uncomfortable for them, isn't it? You'd have thought so, though they they like to play the ball on the ground a bit and Newport's pitch was quite tricky for a team that like to pass out from the back. But yes, I mean, Brighton will draw a bit of confidence from scraping through that, but City are beginning to look rather ominously good. They, Stones of the trick season, he's, he's back to his best. They're looking solid at the back now. You know, Aguero is gradually getting bits and pieces more. You think he might have an impact towards the end of the season. They're still creating a lot of chances, and it's just a matter of question of um, whether they can convert the amount of chances they're creating. They're starting to convert a few more. Every time Foden plays, he looks like he's playing every week. I can see why he's been rested you know, and used quite well, and I suspect we'll see the benefit of that over a long period of time. But the City are looking ominously good with their squad depth. Yeah. What about you, Migs? When you look at City, do you see potential champions? Oh, yes, very much so, I have to say. And that was not an opinion I had two months ago. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There were a lot of murmurs coming out about how, you know, it was Pep's fifth season for the first time in his career he'd spent so long and a lot of the players were sick of the intensity. On the other side of that, to be fair, and I did write this around the Spurs game when they are defeated, or no, sorry, it was, it was that weekend, it was around that November period where someone close to City had basically told me that you shouldn't get too alarmed by the format because all of this 
this perceived flatness is because the club and the particularly the kind of physical conditioning team are conscious of just how taxing this calendar is. So they're basically trying to kind of manage the load and it's and essentially it's to ensure that the team is at the right physical condition at the right times. At the time, I thought, I have to say, I didn't write this, but I thought it was um, that, 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 that sounding like someone was trying to just put a positive spin on what was a bad spell for the club. Yet now it seems like it might well be true because they really look ominous again. And maybe there's a part of it as well, essentially, where Guardiola, he kind of, not slackened off, but kind of just got the club to stand, or the team to stand off a little bit early doors, not race out of the traps in the way we've become accustomed to in English football over the last few seasons. Really, that was something that was put in place by Mourinho, where teams, you know, some of the best teams almost won the league in the first few weeks. Because of the calendar, that's not going to happen this season. And maybe Guardiola's feeling the benefit of that now, that they just... Because because the league has been so volatile, they just kind of stood off and stood still a little bit, and now are very well positioned. Yeah, I just want to bring it all together if I could now, and and almost like the theme of the day, really the the nature of the the football calendar and how overcrowded it is. If one element of that calendar has to be sacrificed, what do you think it would be, Glenn? What do you think? Well, we mentioned, I mentioned a couple of possibilities. I mean, they should have maybe had a contingency for reducing the amount of games in the Premier League if it began to look like it. But, of course, it's a bit late to stop that now and suddenly say, oh, if you're 11th, you're in the relegation half. You know, rejoin the World Cup groups. They've not even started yet. So, in theory, you could do that. Again, I can't see it happening. Um, it's very hard to see where the space might be. I suspect it may well become forced upon football authorities by governments in various countries simply stopping things happening, at which point it becomes in very difficult. One thing that's obviously in grave danger is the Euros in in the form that being they're currently planned, if at all. But it's 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 almost inconceivable to imagine a pan-European competition, even if there's no fans allowed, with everyone crisscrossing Europe from country to country. I, I just cannot see that happening as planned. Um, quite how it happens, you know, who knows? Glad I'm not planning it. <laughs> what about you, Migs? Yeah, I would completely agree with, with Glenn there. I mean, personally, there are so many elements of the calendar I think can and should be cut, but won't be cut because of so many of the considerations we've already spoken about, from contractual to just everyone wanting or no one wanting to see ground. And I think it will come down to governments. And I do actually wonder, in just I know Glenn mentioned it earlier, and he touched upon it there, whether, not whatever the Euros, whether European competition in danger purely because governments get more restrictive about who can cross their borders. And then UEFA has another decision to make and whether, whether we might have to see another kind of Champions League, Europa League in one country. So far, sport has been quite successful in getting dispensation. But uh, it does feel a case of football isn't going to make these solutions itself. They're going to carry on hoping for the best case scenario all the time. And they might, and it might be the governments that force them into thinking about the worst case. Yeah, one area perhaps who could squeeze a couple of weekend programs back is if the Champions League and Europa, Europa League quarterfinals and semifinals were put together in, in a week at a neutral venue, a sort of version of last year. That yeah. would take out the clubs that are playing most. If you pack those games into like a, a midweek or and, and a weekend, it requires slight revision of domestic fishes, but it would create some space in the calendar. And you could still end up, if necessary, if there's space with a showpiece final in both competitions, or maybe you just tap the final as well. But I think that's the most obvious area you could rearrange without too much complications. Yeah, look, I know we're, we're looking at making the best of a very bad job here. 
if I had to choose one expendable element of the calendar, I'd go for the European Championships. It's already been postponed for a year. As we've said, mass international travel won't be realistic this summer. Let's relaunch it in 2022 as a build-up to a Winter World Cup. And the wider problem, you know, I've, I've sensed a growing apathy around international football, with the possible exception of Scotland, of course. The international breaks in October and November were absurd. What's the point of the break that's planned in March? Frankly, I wouldn't mind waiting another year for the Tartan Army to descend on Wembley. What about you? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Miguel and Glenn and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Podcast.